Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who has built an omni-channel digital product that integrates hardware, software and services into one. And in my spare time, I want to know how the Taiwanese tech giants such as Foxconn and TSMC are doing today. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today, I have again Tim Kapan from Bloomberg. Welcome, Tim. And it's great to have you back again since our last conversation on the Xiaomi IPO. Nice to talk to you, Bernard. Yeah, the Xiaomi IPO was fascinating and it was a great conversation. I think uh, we've got a lot to talk about today as well. And we have a pretty well-received feedback on that episode. I just wanted to know, two weeks since we last talked about the Xiaomi IPO, what have you been up to? I've been looking a lot more closely at some of the issues surrounding TSMC. It's early August 2018 right now. We're heading into earnings season for the big Chinese internet players, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. And sometime we will be seeing Xiaomi's first ever earnings conference and quarterly earnings statement. So that'll be fascinating. Through our last conversation, we wanted to talk about two companies that you have actually done a lot of detailed discussion with me three years back and both companies are Taiwanese tech giants, Foxconn and TSMC. So today's conversation, I'm going to break it up into two parts. The first part I want to talk about is Foxconn because you have a long history covering Foxconn before your current geek as a columnist with Bloomberg. So maybe I will let you introduce Foxconn first and then we'll move forward with the next part of the conversation. Sure. So Foxconn is a company that's, I think the name is quite well known in tech circles globally now. If you don't know the name Foxconn, it's probably just not your area of interest. They're most famous for being the assembler of Apple iPhones. It was founded by Terry Gore many years ago, and they started off doing very simple things like plastic knobs for televisions. Terry Gore really started the company specializing in plastics. Electronics was not his original specialty, and he really kind of fell into it because a lot of what he was doing was for the electronics industry. And he moved vertically, I guess you could say even horizontally, more into the electronic side of it. The name Foxconn actually comes from the word connector. That's things like printer cables back in the day when printer cables were were wide ribbons of cable. And from then, of course, it's moved on to things like USB cables and so forth. And then now to this day, they're known better as an assembler of electronic products. But assembly was not their original uh, kind of founding, really something that came in in later decades. And of course, Foxconn is also very well known in the industry. If you go to Taiwan, it's called the Honhai Precision Industry Corporate Limited, right? That's right, Honhai Precision Industry. It's kind of a flagship company of the Foxconn Technology Group. There is actually no specific company, no legal entity called the Foxconn Technology Group. It's really just a moniker that we use to describe a collection of companies controlled by Terry Gore and Hanhai Precision Industry Co., Taiwan Tigris 2317, is the largest of those. It's listed in Taipei on the Taipei Exchange, and uh, it also owns shares in a lot of the other companies in the group. So Hanhai is really what they're known as as well. I have to say that the episode that you did with me three years ago is probably the, the best episode I've done in Analyze Asia's history. And I actually would direct a lot of my audience to go back and listen to it because it has a lot of back history and a lot about Foxconn that I think is still relevant today. Well, that's very flattering. I'm happy to hear that people enjoyed it and learned something from it. Since our last conversation, how does the Foxconn Group as a company evolve? So we last spoke about three years ago, so I guess that was mid-2015. And I guess one thing that's a little bit sad to say is that Foxconn hasn't really evolved. It's still pretty much the same company. Now, a few changes have happened since then. 
They did spin off one of their divisions, Foxconn Industrial Internet, listed in Shanghai earlier this year in 2018, raised a lot of money and became immediately one of the largest tech companies listed in China. But the company itself is still very, very dependent on Apple. It gets more than 50% of its revenue from Apple. And the rest of what it does is also essentially around the hardware business. One thing that's very interesting that came out of the FII listing was we got to see a lot more deeper, deeply into the company, the group as a whole, and this, com- this company that they were spinning off called Foxconn Industrial Internet. And one of the things that we found out is that as a group, if you think of Foxconn Technology Group as is all connected, around about 60 to 65% of revenue comes from Honhai, the parent company. And that is the part that assembles iPhones, amongst other things. Around about 30% comes from FII, Foxconn Industrial Internet. Around about 7% comes from a company called FIH Mobile. Now, FIH Mobile is the part of Foxconn that does assembly of mobile phones apart from Apple. So Xiaomi is a client of FIH Mobile. Huawei is actually a client of FIH Mobile. And a lot of other Chinese players, Oppo, Vivo, OnePlus, have on and off been clients of FIH Mobile. And another big name that is working very, very closely with FIH Mobile is Nokia. Well, Nokia HMD, which is a joint venture between Foxconn itself and some uh, some people who spun off from Nokia. So they're trying to revive the Nokia smartphone brand. So that's really the breakdown of Foxconn. There's a few other smaller companies in the group that between them get about 4 or 5% of of group revenue. So the point of what I'm saying is that we get to see more deeply you know, where the various parts of the pie are coming from. And Foxconn Industrial Internet was pitched as being, you know, the, the future of Foxconn, all about robotics and AI and, and automation and all that kind of stuff. It was known as being the smart factory division of Foxconn. But in going through the prospectus and, and reading more deeply into the company, what I found, Bernard, is this, this smart factory division of Foxconn is actually not very smart. Their robotics division is like very, very, very small percentage of its revenue, like single digit percents, probably not even one or two percent of its revenue. Most of its revenue at this smart factory just comes from doing something as boring and mundane as the metal or the, the outer shell casings of iPhone, which is actually kind of challenging stuff to do. Not anybody can do it at scale to, to make the casings of an iPhone. We're talking, you know, tens of millions of, of these quarter. But it's not exactly smart factory, you know, automated robotic stuff. A lot of the, the manufacturing processes is automated, but it's not the the high-level stuff that you'd expect. Another part of what they do at this this part of Foxconn is to put together the LCD modules or the OLED modules, the display modules, essentially. It's kind of like a frame. If you'd pull apart an iPhone, you'd see that the display fits onto a frame and goes inside and holds the whole thing together. Again, it's an important part of the puzzle. And in fact, it gets pretty good margins compared to assembly because you can get machines to do a lot of it, but it's not exactly leading edge robotics. And the robotics division itself, which is to build factory robotics, doesn't really do much at Foxconn. That was the one big takeaway since the last time we spoke about this topic three years ago, Bernard, we were all thinking that robotics was going to be a big part of Foxconn's future. And we've since learned that that's just not the way it's playing out. It's not working like that. 
it seems that a lot of these manufacturing companies, not just Foxconn, I mean, Tesla has the same problem with their production, even to the point where Elon Musk has to concede that human way of working to do production for cars is the better way forward than robotics. I guess robotics is still very far away from being able to customize or even make any configuration change because once something makes a mistake, the mistakes just carry forwards all the way. Is that what is happening in the manufacturing industry? Yes, you pretty much nailed it. I think it's interesting that you mentioned Elon Musk because it's perfect to mention Elon Musk. And the reason why I say that is that the, the source that I've spoken to in Foxconn over the years tell me that Terry Gore himself has visited Elon Musk at at Tesla's facilities in the US more than a few times to learn about how Elon Musk is automating his factories because he looks at that and goes, wow, I want to do that too. And if we talk about Wisconsin and the plans there, which we can talk about in a moment, that was kind of the model for the way Terry Gore sees the future. And of course, as you just point out, Elon Musk is learning that automation is actually really not that great. And I think I'm not an automation expert, but I've spoken to a lot of people in the supply chain. And what I'm learning is that automation for assembly, putting part A into part B, screwing it together, sticking it together, welding it, whatever, is actually quite difficult. It takes a lot of, it's not just really good robots that are very, very accurate in where they, they place the device or the tooling, but sensors that can adjust things. So human, the human fingers and the human eyes and the human mind work very, very quickly. Human fingers are very dexterous. are very, very difficult to get a robot to do that. However, robots are very good thing for things that are very, very standard. A lot of the casings that go for iPads or even the, you think of a MacBook, which is just a big slab of metal. A robot's perfect for that because you basically hold it up and you carve out the metal from that. And a, a human... It's very efficient for a human to do that. If you ever looked at documentaries where you see, for example, wooden table legs, you know, or watched uh, ceramics being done on a ceramic wheel, when you're carving things or cutting things or shaping things, robotics are very good for it. But when it's putting two parts together, robots really not that good. It takes a lot of time to train them. And in fact, you can train a human in half a day to do that, whereas it could take you months to train a robot to do that. So robots are just not there yet. Paraphrasing Mark Twain, the rumors of robots taking over manufacturing jobs are greatly exaggerated. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say so. But, you know, with cloud computing, AI, big data and all those things, robots can be trained to learn and so they will get better. But I think that humans will still be far ahead of robots for a long time to come. This has also have been a very interesting week because I see a very interesting tweet you have shared recently on Apple's recent one trillion market capitalization milestone that Foxconn is only valued at one out of 20, which is approximately 5% of Apple's market cap. Why has Foxconn stock not rise with Apple given that it is captive to Apple for more than 50%? I mean, Apple is a big customer to Foxconn. I think that's really the point of captive. In the last few years, they have improved things at Foxconn in terms of their efficiency and so forth. I guess they're getting so good at making iPhones, they know how to do it, right? So things get better. But the margins haven't really expanded in the longer term. Apple's still a very good company. Got to a one trillion market cap and everyone talks about, oh, you know, Apple's future is over and the iPhone is a has-been product. And they look at one or two quarters or one or two years 
years and say it's all over. But one thing to remember is that what Apple does get to do is charge a lot more for their product. The iPhone 10 is more expensive than any other iPhone in history. And guess what? People still buy it, right? Because at the end of the day, people are not that sensitive to Apple pricing. Foxconn, on the other hand, Foxconn doesn't have a lot of room to raise its prices for its major client, which is Apple. So it's been stuck in this situation where they're relying on one major client. But Foxconn hasn't really been able to add much value. The value that Foxconn adds to Apple today is pretty much the same value that they added to Apple a decade ago when the iPhone first came out. There's not much improvement. There's not much more that they're doing. They're not helping Apple with, say, hosting their cloud services. They're not really helping Apple roll out a movie or TV or music distribution business. And so all they're really doing is just helping them assemble products. And, you know, get the supply chain in order and all those things that are very, very important. Foxconn hasn't moved forward, so they haven't got the benefit. And so to this day, you know, their market cap is somewhere around 50 billion US dollars, you know, 5% of Apple's because they have not kept up with the time. And it doesn't help when they couldn't get the Toshiba chip deal as well, right? Because if they had the advantage of solid state devices, then they could even be able to increase the value with Apple. But that didn't happen either. That's correct. And the fact that they managed to get sharp after all those years was definitely a success. And adding Sharp into the Foxconn family has been good for Sharp and good for Foxconn. Foxconn has done a pretty good job of turning Sharp around. I, I admit that I was sceptical. I, I didn't think that they'd be able to manage it because of cultural clashes and issues. But I do have to give kudos to Foxconn for managing to turn Sharp quite around quite well and then quite quickly. One of the reasons is Dai Zhengul, the, the chief you know, architect of that turnaround himself, is fluent in Japanese studied in Japan and has really spent a lot of time working with Japanese people and working out the culture and how to turn things around. Toshiba, ironically, I think the fact that Foxconn did win Sharp made it difficult for them to win Toshiba. I think that the Japanese stakeholders were not keen to see Foxconn, you know, buy up yet another Japanese company. It would have been a loss of face for them. And so initially, I think Foxconn had the best chance of getting Toshiba and getting access to the flash memory technology and manufacturing, but they didn't in the end. And I do think that's a loss for them. I think that flash memory is a very, very important part of the electronic supply chain, especially for for handheld devices like iPhones. And it could have really helped them put together a much stronger catalogue of products and services they could sell to clients like Apple. So I think it's a loss for them not to be able to get it, but I think that they'll be able to regroup and find other things they can do. The acquisition of Sharps for the screens technology is one big milestone that the Foxconn Group have. They managed to turn around the company. And of course, there are also other major milestones for the Foxconn Group in the last three years. I, I think before I go to the other milestones, I wanted to ask, as in, did the acquisition of Sharp actually help them to be able to grow as a company, but maybe it's not as fast as what they have originally conceived? Yeah, it has. It has helped them grow. Not, I think you're right, and probably not as much as we might have expected, but I think it's been a, a success. I, I don't think you could say that the Sharp acquisition was a failure. 
one thing that we need to look at in the next few years, and, and I, I guess Terry Gore was aware of this even before I was, but Apple is moving down the path of developing their own screen technology in the same way that they have been for many years developing their own semiconductor technology. The, you know, the core process within an iPhone is designed by Apple engineers, mostly in Cupertino, and then outsourced to TSMC. But the displays that they put in their products are essentially sourced from outside companies, notably Samsung. Samsung does most of the OLED, which is the latest technology, but Apple doesn't really like that situation. And so they're looking to the future to develop their own screen technology. But I don't imagine that they will have full volume production of screen technology. I think that they will develop the technology, so develop the recipe about how to make it, and then find an outsourced partner to do that in the same way that they design the handset and get Foxconn to put it together. They design the chip and they get TSMC to put that together. I think that Apple will design this core screen technology and get someone else to put that together for them. And Sharp would be a very, very good choice for that, probably. Maybe not only Sharp, possibly other companies, Japanese companies, Korean companies, possibly LG, possibly Japan Display, possibly Taiwan's AUO, or even Inalux, which we forget still exists and is actually owned by a Foxconn group. But that could play well into the Sharp's hands in terms of Sharp being sure that they stay relevant for the future of Apple when Apple wants to do its own screen technology. So help me understand this. So as of today, does Sharp has its own research and development arm to actually improve the technology that they have. Yeah, Sharp has a, a pretty good R&D arm. It certainly doesn't stack up to Samsung, maybe doesn't stack up to LG Display, the other South Korean display maker. But Sharp is good. They're very, very good at the technology that they do. They've been one of the leaders. And this is one of the reasons why finding a buyer for Sharp was important, to give a capital injection, to make sure they've got enough money to develop their screen technology, both the small and medium-sized screens that you'd have in phones and tablets, also a larger screen for, for TVs, for example. And so their, their technology R&D background, I think, is strong. And I think it stays strong. But this is the kind of thing where you just have to keep, you know, sprinting and sprinting and sprinting because screen technology does develop quickly and you can't really rest on your laurels. So any company, if they don't keep, keep at it, could fall behind very quickly. But I think Sharp is still up there. That comes to the second milestone is the recent setup of manufacturing in the US at Wisconsin, which is actually the state which current Speaker of the House Paul Ryan is in. So what does that mean for Foxconn Group as a whole? This was a fantastic example of Terry Gore doing what Terry Gore does best. That's being a salesman. Terry Gore is a master salesman. He's very, very good at winning over clients. He's very good at making the, the important people feel important. And to Terry Gore, important people are clients and stakeholders like government. And so if you look at the state of Wisconsin as a client, he did a very good job of convincing you know, Governor Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, and, and his team that Foxconn was, was the man for them, or the people for them. But then was very good at making sure that they got a lot out of it. So the state of Wisconsin has pledged billions and billions and billions of dollars of aid, including tactics, cheap land, subsidies on this, subsidies on that, building roads, building infrastructure, all that stuff. So that in the end, Foxconn's actual outlay 
will not be that huge. So much of it will be subsidized by the state of Wisconsin that the actual cost of Foxconn will not be fantastically high. And even then, don't be surprised if Foxconn doesn't deliver on all of the things that they made Wisconsin believe that they might deliver. I don't want to say promise because I don't think Foxconn promised anything, but Wisconsin certainly led to believe that lots and lots and lots of jobs would come at very, very high salaries and so on and so forth. And I think the truth may fall short of that and we won't know for many years and it won't be all that clear initially, but I think that taxpayers in Wisconsin will be paying for that decision for quite a long time. And I think the last milestone that I'll probably be interested to know is about FIH Mobile because they manufacture phones for most of the other companies that are not Apple. So they're sustaining a substantial loss about US, uh, 525 million last year. What does that mean for Foxconn and why is FIH Mobile losing so much money? FIH Mobile is just poor cousin of Foxconn. It just never can seem to catch a break or get things right. So in the last few years, they started to do well because they, for example, when Xiaomi had its first big explosion, did really well in the, you know, a few years ago. They managed to ride that wave almost accidentally. They admitted to me that at first they, they pretty much dismissed Xiaomi, didn't take them seriously. They kind of stumbled across them and thought, oh, these guys are cool. And so they did well out of it. But since then, they've certainly fallen down. Interestingly, some of it is in the investment area of what FIH Mobile does. They invested, for example, in an Indian e-commerce company. Foxconn decided to go in with Masayashi Son and, and invest in Indian e-commerce. And that deal was funneled through FIH Mobile, not Hon Hai directly. And I'll point out that Hon Hai owns like 70 or 80% of FIH Mobile. But FIH Mobile was the company that was put up as being the front to invest in, in the Indian e-commerce company. And and over a few rounds of devaluation, because it was a startup, but they basically essentially wrote off a lot of the value of this investment. So that made them lose money. Another area where FIH Mobile is losing money is in their attempts to turn Nokia HM, Nokia the brand, cool again through their Nokia HMD venture. Now that's struggling a little bit. The Nokia branded smartphones out there are pretty good. They're not bad. And certainly I think there's a lot of nostalgia for the Nokia brand name, but they're not making money and FIH Mobile is therefore losing money as a result of being not only the assembler of these phones, but actually being a, a venture partner in this, this program to try and reinvigorate the brand name. So two of the areas where FIH Mobile is actually losing money. And that's, I think, one thing that they need to look at very closely about these their investment decision. They're publicly listed as well, right? Will their stock price have an impact to Foxconn or are they currently not so much correlated? because they, they don't seem to be related to each other. Well, FIH Mobile, because under accounting rules, because FIH Mobile is controlled by Honhai and it's 70-80% owned, if you look at Honhai's financials, when you consolidate it, the revenue from FIH Mobile goes into the top line of Honhai. So when Honhai every quarter releases them their quarterly revenue, some of that will be FIH Mobile revenue. And then as you go through the P&L of the financial statements, at the income line where you say net income and the net income to the parents, you take out net income or loss that would go to minority shareholders, such as the shareholders of FIH Mobile that are not on high. So it's taken out through the P&L. So it actually goes into the top line and then is taking out P&L. So the actual stock price of FIH Mobile 
doesn't impact Honhai directly, but the financials of FIH Mobile do impact. Since we talk about all the major milestones, of course, we talk about Foxconn's leadership. Terrigo at some point has to retire. So how has Foxconn's leadership changed in the past three years? Any potential successors to Terrigo? No. Uh, I, I have to say that it's, it's, it's a conversation I wish we could have at greater depth. We talked about this three years ago. It's now August 2018. Terry Gore doesn't look like he's going to retire anytime soon. There's not really any sense that there is a successor. He's talked about he would want someone you know, to be a lot younger, which would hint that some of the people around him that we've spoken about before, like Lin Fang Yu or Dai Zheng Wu, might be might not be Terry Gore's preferred successors. His son, Jeff, who was really out of the business for a long time, off doing his own things, is now back in Taiwan and, and running a very small side business, which is kind of a venture arm and uh, a, a kind of an electronic shopping mall right next to Taipei's famous Guanghua market. But there's no sense that his son would be a successor or a groom successor. I don't get any sense that he even would want to. So right now, as we talk about this mid 20 2018, I think there's absolutely zero clarity on who might take over Foxconn. And I think that's definitely a concern. Well, his age is currently in the mid-60s, right? I'm Maurice Chang, who is the founder or CEO of chairman of TSMC, has actually retired in the 80s. So he can still last for another 20 years. Look, it's true. I think Terry Gore is quite fit. A few years ago, he a little bit unwell, but, you know, he's, he looks stronger again now. And I think it's just the process of being human that, you know, you're not as strong and fit as you were when you're in your 20s. My sense is that Terry Gore is still mentally very, very alert. But, you know, there's also, I mean, to put it bluntly, and I'm not wishing this on Terry Gore, but there is hit by the bus scenarios. Accidents happen, things happen, you know, life happens. Nobody is impenetrable and vulnerable to, to whatever may happen in the world, to accidents and so forth. So even though he's very fit, the reality is that his board, which is really controlled appointed by him anyway, should be looking at the issue of succession, and they don't seem to be. And I think that is a very, very big corporate risk at, at Hong Kong. So that comes to the next part of the conversation, which is the TSMC Group, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which you also have done one full episode on. So I think there's also some interesting news that have just happened in the past few days. Similar, like Foxconn is a Taiwanese tech giant, and not surprisingly, it's also one of its biggest customers is Apple as well. I think I'm going to start off first with, with TSMC's group's leadership because it has undergone a major leadership transition in the last year with Maurice Chang, the chairman, retiring. And it also reached his 30th anniversary, which I highly recommend anybody who wants to know about the semiconductor business and where it should go, should go and watch that two-hour video because it has all the movers and shakers of semiconductors in that particular panel. I, I agree with you, Bernard. That that was really a fascinating conversation just to kind of interrupt and, and talk more about that specific point that you raised because I think it's important. So what Morris Jung managed to do was get, as you say, some of the movers and shakers of the industry, including a man called Jeff Williams. He's basically the head of supply chain and operations at Apple. He is in the role that Tim Cook was in before Tim Cook stepped up to run the company. And Jeff Williams was on the stage and I was just 
flabbergasted when I heard this, basically outlined and admitted that, yes, TSMC did set up a factory for us in Thailand and they spent X billion dollars and this is, you know, what we get from them. That had never been admitted on record. We knew that TSMC had set up a factory in Thailand and spent, I think it was three or five billion US dollars on it. Jeff Williams from Apple actually got up on stage and admitted it. And that was a very big moment because this relationship was always behind you know, closed doors. TSMC doesn't like to talk about its clients, even though we know that they're Apple and Qualcomm and others. And also on stage was Hong Jin Shun of NVIDIA and a few other very important movers and shakers, including Qualcomm. And so it's very, very, very rare that you would see such powerful, important tech industry titans all on the stage together. But if there is one person in the industry who could get them together on stage, it was Ms. Morris Chang. So I absolutely agree. Anyone should uh, go back and watch that video online. It's a couple of hours and you will learn so much. Also, the CEO arm was also there. So I guess coming back to my original question is, how has the leadership change impact the company? Well, I think that Morris Chang deserves incredible credit for setting up and telegraphing this change really for over a decade. He did, for a period of time, about a decade ago, appoint another CEO, a guy called Rick Tsai. And to put it bluntly, it was a failure. Rick Tsai kind of didn't do a good job. And Morris Chang was, you know, he showed the leadership that the company, that its stakeholders need, and basically said, you know what, I'm changing my mind. I'm not, I don't want to retire to be CEO anymore. I'm taking back the helm. So Morris Chang took back the CEO position, in addition to still being the chairman, which he'd always been, and took another approach and appointed three people to be in line for succession. One of those people since dropped out and and retired. And so for a few years, two long-term TSMC executives called uh, one C.C. Wei and the other one Mark Leo were co-CEOs while Morris Chang was chairman. We knew that these two would run the company when Morris Chang steps down eventually, and we didn't know which would be which or how it would play out, but it was it did play out somewhat as predicted. And so now, since Morris Chang stepped down in July 2018 from the company altogether, he's no longer chairman, he's no longer CEO, he's, he's got no formal title. Mark Liu, the former co-CEO, is now chairman of the company, and CC Wei is now the sole CEO of the company. And this is very, very important because basically Morris Chang groomed them for many years, but at the same time has now stepped away and said, it's your show now, it's your business, you're running it. And so that's a really stark contrast to the way Terry Gore has or has not done a leadership succession. And back to your original point, how has things changed? The answer is not much. And in in a way, that's what you want from a leadership change. And it's certainly in the first few years. If you're changing too much too quickly, then that can be very disruptive. At some point, you know, Mark Lill is going to have to make his own decisions. CC Way, as CEO, will have to make decisions and will have to do things his way and not try and interpret or guess what Morris Chung would have done. But right now, there's not a lot of change at TSMC. It's pretty much functioning as it should. And right now, as we speak, you know, it is Monday on the uh, 5th of August, or sorry, is it 6th of August, and uh, they're dealing with a very big crisis, probably the first large crisis under Mark Leo and CC Way's uh, helming of the company in their current title, and that is a virus outbreak that's occurred in the factories that has actually had real impact on 
manufacturing, it has brought some production to a halt. And we found out over the weekend that they expect that 3% of their quarterly revenue will be impacted and one percentage point of gross margin will be shaved off as a result of this virus incident. And I think this is one of these moments where you really test out the leadership of a company. And it's really too early for me to tell you how they're handling it, but you know, by all intents, from all intents and purposes, they seem to be doing well. But I think if we look back, and if you if listeners want to look back at the news flow, say towards the end of 2018, and see how it all played out, we'll find out. But right now, they seem to be handling the crisis quite well. Since we're on a conversation of the virus attack recently on TSMC, what actually happened? I mean, we probably, they are still reacting to the incident. We probably will only know in the next few months' time before we put a verdict on whether they have handled it well. So let me tell you what I know. And I want, I want you and listeners to, um, to, to really understand that I'm, I'm telling you what I know kind of 24 to 72 hours after it all came down and the situation may be different in the end. And so what I'm telling you now is is my best understanding of the situation from talking to, to various people is that a piece of equipment was installed at a factory, semiconductor production equipment from their vendor, their supplier. I haven't been able to work out which supplier that is or who's responsible for the installation, whether the supplier supplied it directly to TSMC or it went through what we call a system system integrator who often takes equipment, installs software, gets it all going and kind of tweaked and tuned ready for installation. But at some point, this equipment was installed inside the factory with the virus already there. Their kind of their installation and boot up protocol was not followed from what I understand. And so the virus was not detected, not isolated and managed to spread through TSMC's internal networks to other factories in in different physical locations. So Shinju, Tainan and and other places within Taiwan. That's why more than one factory was impacted because the virus was introduced via the equipment installation. They say it was not a hack. I guess that comes down to what is your definition of a hack. It does not seem to me like there was an external actor who got in through network systems and penetrated firewalls and broke in that way. However, I am suspicious and I've just published a column on this because it's a lot of coincidence that somehow TSMZ managed to have a a piece of equipment in their factory with virus pre-installed and a virus, someone went and wrote a virus for this equipment. That's not something that you accidentally do. Someone had written a virus and they somehow managed to get on get on this equipment. I don't know how that happened, whether it was from the original vendor, whether it was through the system integrator or some other way, but this was very disruptive to TSMC and someone is probably sitting there rubbing their hands with glee at the impact that they've had, assuming that it was deliberately written, which I think it probably was. So they don't call that a hack, depending on what definition of a hack is. Maybe it could be called a hack, maybe it couldn't, but certainly something happened. And I think the story will be continuing as well. But I just only have two more questions, but I'm going to lump them together in view of time. I guess after the leadership transition, uh, what are the key revenue drivers for the TSMC group? And 
if I were to ask you today, what are the innovations in semiconductor industry that TSMC is driving forward in the next few years? Are they slated for growth or are they just going to be business as usual? I think they're still growing. I think smartphones are going to be a very important key. One thing that they've been saying for a few years, and I think it remains true, is that the semiconductor component of smartphones in terms of value still keeps growing. If you look at an iPhone, for example, you've got your core processor, your APU or your CPU, but then you have other processors. And then you've got various types of accessories, such as the AirPods, which also have their own chips. And you've got sensors and all sorts of other types of semiconductors that go into a device. And so they manage to get more and more revenue every year from smartphones because smartphones are getting smarter. And a lot of that is to do with semiconductor technology. But what's interesting is there's a lot of talk about the future of a semiconductor company's abilities to shrink down the die size or the interconnects within chips. And that's being a very big challenge. One way TSMC is kind of working around it spending a lot of time and money going into the packaging part of the chip industry, which is not sexy. But when you make a chip, you're basically making it on a slice of silicon, and then you're putting it all together within a ceramic packaging. And now what companies are doing is they're getting one chip and they're stacking it on top of another chip and then stacking another on top of that like a sandwich. And the packaging process is very important for that because this is we're talking about very, very, very small connections. And so a very important part of that process is making sure that you can stack them together and wrap it all together and package it together. TSMC previously didn't really do much in this area, but they're doing a lot more of it. They're spending a lot of time and energy and R&D to get better at that. And so I think one of the key innovations for TSMC in coming years will be how they deal with packaging and, and how important that will be to their business and to help their clients. I think that this semiconductor piece is not going to be going away so soon because you're going to have autonomous vehicles, whether it's drones, self-driving cars, and any other new technology, wearables moving ahead, they will all need these semiconductor chips. So TSMC is still one of the biggest boundaries that made these semiconductor chips. Yeah, I agree. They're, they're certainly not going away. So, um, yeah, watch this space, I guess, as the cliche goes. Tim, many thanks for coming on the show to talk about Foxconn and TSMC in 2018. That's three years after. And I think it's interesting to actually reflect upon. So, on closing, I want to ask you any interesting book, movie, podcast, or anything else you have recently seen and that impacted your life? Well, you know, I was going to say one book that I do recommend people reading, and I can't remember that I recommended this last time. I know we, we recommended Brad Stone's books, but with Tesla being such a fascinating company again, and Elon Musk being in the news again in 2018, I do recommend people go back to Ashley Vance's book, Tesla, SpaceX, and Quest for a Fantastic Future. I will point out Ashley Vance is, is a colleague of mine. He does work for Bloomberg. It does give you a bit of an insight into Elon Musk. I don't write about Elon Musk or Tesla, but I think that'd be a great book for your readers to read if they haven't already. That's a pretty good book. I've actually read it, but I think his story is has yet to be complete. So I'm just waiting whether what happens after he passes because I think that's actually a much more detailed way of writing about someone's life. Where can my audience find you? I think the easiest way is still on Twitter, at T Culpin. So that's T-C-U-L. P-A-N. I do have kind of a sub-website on the Bloomberg Opinion page, but the easiest way to find me is to go to my Twitter and follow me there, and I tweet most of my columns, and from there you can find my work. 
And if you do follow me and you want to reach out or say something uh, or have a conversation, my DMs are usually open on Twitter, so you can probably write. And you can Google me at Bernard Leung. And of course, you can also find us on any podcast channels. And of course, recently we set up a Telegram channel, which I'll post a link on the Twitter feed because Twitter is actually where Analyze Asia always communicates with its audience. And of course, tweet to me or give us some feedback. And best of all, give me a five star on Apple Podcasts and one star on Overcast and Pocket Cast. So once again, Tim, many thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Bernard.